Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, for the third season of Jerusalem Unplugged podcast, it's a great pleasure to have as a guest, Professor Suleiman Ali Murad. Professor Murad is currently at Smith College, where he's working on, I would say, largely on Islamic history, but obviously he's focusing on Jerusalem and Palestine at large. I just want to mention here a few works because we're going to talk about some of them. Uh, he recently worked on the very popular documentary produced by CNN, released in 2021, Jerusalem City of Faith and Fury, which actually saw a number of the uh, guests of the podcast delivering their uh, knowledge throughout the uh, series dedicated to Jerusalem, and also another documentary produced by PBS in 2017, Sultan and the Saint. And his books include uh, Ibn Sakir of Damascus, champion of Sunni Islam at the time of the Crusades, uh, but also sort of a, an anthology, Muslim Sources of a Crusader Period, an anthology published in 2021. And as already mentioned here on the podcast, the amazing volume dedicated to Jerusalem, published by Routledge, Routledge Handbook on Jerusalem, that was released in 2019. And we already took the to Bedros Dermatosian about this. And so today we're going to pick up again on this volume, which I always suggest to not just scholars and students, but to everyone to get a very sophisticated and at the same time accessible history of Jerusalem. But first of all, Suleiman, welcome. Thank you so much, Roberto, for having me on your show. Suleiman, the first question I want to ask is, do you have a special connection to Jerusalem? You've wrote extensively about the city. And if not, how did you get to work on the city of Jerusalem? Uh, my connection to Jerusalem is uh, partly academic and partly personal. Uh, academic, I studied it uh, at the beginning at the American University of Beirut. 
And this is where the personal starts. Uh, most of my teachers were originally Palestinians who had to leave Palestine because of uh, the creation of Israel. Uh, and uh, through their eyes, through their own experiences, I get to develop this kind of personal attachment to their memories in Palestine and Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, the way, obviously, when you study Middle Eastern history, which I did at the American University of Beirut, uh, the question of Palestine is central. You, there's no way you can uh, avoid that. Uh, so academically, I became very much interested, especially at the beginning in the question of British colonial rule, uh, what happened in 1920s, 1930s. And the more I read about it, I developed fondness to go and see those places. But obviously at the time as a Lebanese, I couldn't. Uh, so it developed more into conversations with colleagues and teachers uh, to get to know more about that. I read a lot uh, of biographies uh, and personal notes written by scholars that I happen to know. Uh, uh, and there are plenty to name. But, uh, uh, so in a way, the personal is through the eyes of mostly of my teachers. I have a question about your work in general. So you're working and focusing on Islamic history. And I always feel like when we talk about Islamic, there's a bit of confusion. What does it mean, Islamic, right? People only focus on maybe very you know, narrow aspects of Islam as a religion. And others tend to look at when we talk about Islamic history also, including all of the various cultures, languages, ethnicities, and people that have been in time included into you know, this wider world of, uh, sort of Islam. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of when you talk about Islamic history, which is part of your work, and we're going to discuss later in relation to Jerusalem, what does that mean? Obviously, this is a very important and complex question. Um, I, 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 I personally, in my own work and uh, in, the, in the way that I try to approach what I call Islamic history, uh, I try to, one, uh, uh, reject the Eurocentric notion that Islam is a religion exclusively. And I approach it from largely a Middle Eastern uh, understanding that uh, something like Islam is an extremely complex phenomenon. Uh, and therefore, when, when we encounter it, we have to uh, reject boxing it inside something specific. So there is obviously when we say Islamic, there is something that has to do with the religion that's called Islam, which in and of itself is extremely undefinable according to what particular sect or subsect or region or ethnic groups uh, or period of time we define Islam. Do we define it according to a literati elite living in Baghdad uh, who champion uh, Islamic Sharia as a way to access this religious tradition or you define it according to a practitioner who is a rural, doesn't, is, is illiterate and understand Islam a little bit differently. You, you define it as someone who's black in Senegal and who uh, uh, enters through this universe that we call Islamic religion from the perspective of the Marabout or you identify it according to uh, a militant uh, Taliban person in Afghanistan who thinks of it extremely uh, fundamentally as, as something that is black and white as, as this or that 
as according to belief and unbelief, very rigid kind of worldview. So Islam as a religion is extremely complex, but Islam is also a culture. We shouldn't understand that under that culture, there was at some point a majority of Christians and a significant number of Jews, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Buddhists, you name it. All of these people functioned very well under this broad Islamic culture. And it, we call it Islamic culture simply because the Muslims happened to be the political dominant group there. But they were very aware that they were ruling over a very mixed group of populations, ethnicities, languages, cultures, and whatnot. Um, and that in and of itself actually gave rise to what we broadly call the Islamic civilization. So there, the term Islam is not a reference to a religion in as much as to a culture uh, that involved non-Muslims. Uh, so my study of Islamic history is the study of uh, largely this uh, almost 1400 years of uh, intellectual production, cultural production uh, that was uh, produced and celebrated by a very mixed num uh, numbers of peoples and ethnicities and religions that happen to live broadly in what we call the classical Islamic world. And from the seventh century all the way, you know, I'm more and more now drawn to the modern people. So here we have a, a broad definition of what is to be known as Islamic. And that brings me to, you know, start asking questions about uh, Islamic Jerusalem which is uh, a largely debated, but also I would say at the same time neglected topic. I mean, people tend to focus perhaps on buildings, but not necessarily, uh, you know, looking at the broader history of Islamic Jerusalem, which lasted for, for a long time, starting with the conquest of, of Jerusalem in 638. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense, at least of the early part of Islamic Jer uh, Jerusalem how the conquest played out, but more importantly, what did Jerusalem mean for the early followers of Islam, for the early Muslims coming from Arabia, coming from the followers of Prophet Muhammad? That's uh, uh, honestly a fascinating world, and uh, we know a few things about it. Uh, I, would, I would love to, that we uh, get to a point where we can know much, much more uh, and uh, uh, know it more solidly because there is lots of hypotheses and lots of assumptions or deductions from uh, the sources that we read. Uh, but at any rate, uh, it's again, uh, very much like the word Islam. Islamic Jerusalem could mean the things that are exclusively tied to Islamic religion. Uh, but here we need to step a little bit back and look uh, almost like an eagle, uh, give it an eagle look from the sky rather than from uh, a horizontal look uh, on the ground. Uh, the, this kind of a very uh, broad approach to thinking of Islamic Jerusalem uh, is very important because uh, what does it mean for something to be Islamic? Does it have to do, does it have to have exclusive anchoring in Islamic sources? Or it could be anchored, for instance, in the Bible or in the Gospels. Uh, 
And uh, therefore, why I say this? Because Islamic Jerusalem is not only the parts of Jerusalem that are tied to Muslim figures, uh, the parts that are tied to biblical figures, uh, both uh, the broadly we call the ancient Israelite figures and uh, ancient Christians figures, those are also in the understanding of Islam for a large extent um, are part of what we call Islamic Jerusalem. So the place where supposedly Mary is buried, this is according to the Islamic narrative of Jerusalem is sacred. Uh, the entire Haram Sharif, uh, in English we call it Temple Mount, uh, all of this is sacred. And at the beginning of Islam in the seventh century, there is pretty much we can tell with some certainty that there was not yet any direct association of Muslim figures with it. Very likely also the story about the Prophet's ascension from the Temple Mount, from the Haram, wasn't yet popular or known. Uh, so the question is what drew the Muslims to celebrate the sacred of Jerusalem and make it Islamic? And all of this is this kind of the common heritage that shares uh, that Muslims and Christians and Jews share, which we call the biblical heritage. And actually, this is the same thing that we find also in Christianity, that when the Christians took control of Jerusalem, they claimed all of the biblical uh, sites and the biblical associations as part of their own foundation of the state. So when the Muslims came in 638, they claimed that, except that the difference there uh, between the time when the Byzantines occupied Jerusalem and imposed, made it a Christian city, uh, and the Muslims when they took it in 638 and they made it quote unquote an Islamic city, is that the Byzantines were not dealing with a reality where the majority of the population was non-Christian, but the Muslims were dealing with the reality that the majority of the population of Jerusalem was Christian. And therefore they had to leave aside a lot of sites for the complete control of the religious communities uh, that were Christian. Hence, for instance, when the Byzantine started the Christianization of Jerusalem, they took over everything and turned it into Christian spaces. The Muslims only, for the most part, took the Temple Mount, the Haram, and they made it into a, an Islamic religious space. But they kept it open for the others. But, and this is the interesting thing, they kept visiting places like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and like uh, the church where Mary, the mother of Jesus, is buried. Uh, and we know we have stories about, for instance, the first Umayyad Caliph, Muawiyah, praying there, coming to Jerusalem, and before going to the Haram, where he was declared Caliph, he made a stop and prayed at the tomb of Mary and made a stop in the Holy Sepulchre and made prayer to Jesus. So, uh, uh, also, there is still a debate about whether when Caliph Omar came to Jerusalem, whether he actually prayed inside the Holy Sepulchre or outside of it, in its courtyard, which that acknowledges because the Muslims at that time, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't abnormal, for instance, for them to pray in Christian spaces. Uh, the, before the, uh, the Church of Saint, uh, of, of uh, uh, St. John the Baptist in Damascus, what was turned into a mosque which came to be known as the Umayyad Mosque, the Muslims used to pray there. And there are indications that they used to pray in several other churches, uh, including Bethlehem. 
uh, without necessarily demanding that these places be turned into uh, mosques or Islamic spaces. So that really gives you the kind of the contour that we need to approach when we think of Islamic Jerusalem, is that the Muslims came, became the rulers of the city starting in 638. And they didn't go ahead and say, you know, everything from this point onward has to become Islamic according to a certain religious dogma. They identified specific places and they said, nobody is in, is, is, uh, in control of this or, or cares about these places, the Haram in particular. So they took it and they developed it, but all other places that had already their own followers taking care of them, they cherished them, but they kept them in the hands of the other. So when we think of Islamic Jerusalem, we have to think of all of this richness and all of this complexity rather than say, oh, we need to focus on, on that part of Jerusalem that is, uh, that is in the hands of the religious authorities, so to speak. And that would reduce us from the Christian quarters and you know, throughout times, we know that there was a Christian quarter, but there was another Christian quarter called the Armenian quarter. Um, and depending on certain periods, there was a small Jewish quarter. So all of this in the way I understand Islamic Jerusalem, all of this is Islamic Jerusalem. Thank you, this is fascinating. And you made me think about a question which I originally didn't think about, but you talked about the question of demography and population. Obviously when the Arabs arrived in Jerusalem, they were a minority. And I was wondering what happened to the people of Jerusalem? I mean, in general, we have these narratives where when the crusaders arrived, uh, they essentially slaughtered everybody. And so there must have been a change in population. But given that the Arabs historically didn't uh, do that, what happened to the local inhabitants of Jerusalem? How did they relate with the uh, new rulers? Do we have examples of uh, conversion, people fleeing, or new arrivals? How did that play out? You know, interesting uh, uh, about uh, Jerusalem and uh, uh, obviously that extends to Palestine and greater Syria and Egypt to some extent, uh, is that uh, the local population, the local Christian population remained the majority up till the 13th century in Syria, Palestine, uh, in Egypt, possibly up till the 13th century, uh, the end of the 13th century. Uh, the Muslim sources, if you read chronologies only, and uh, most religious literature, they don't convey that uh, fact uh, that the overwhelming population was actually Christian uh, in those parts. Uh, and Jerusalem, by the way, was never an Islamic city in the sense that the majority of the population was Muslim. Uh, that legend that when the Crusaders arrived, they slaughtered everybody is absolutely false. It only exists in the imagination of Crusader fighters who wanted to exaggerate what they have accomplished in Jerusalem on the one hand. Two, it became fodder for what we can call the pre-modern concepts of clash of civilization. Uh, but if we look at the Muslim sources from the 12th century who were talking about what happened to Jerusalem when the Crusaders took it, most of them have no clue that there was a massacre. Actually, if we look at biographical dictionaries talking about the people who died when the Crusaders occupied Jerusalem in 1199, they don't mention except three people. So 
Uh, I'm not saying that there was no massacre in Jerusalem. There was, but it was extremely minimal, possibly around 2,000, 3,000 people that were massacred. It's still significant. Uh, and those you could tell uh, could have been the Muslims that were killed in that number. By the way, the Muslim sources from that period, they speak often of the majority of the people killed were Jews. Uh, but here, we should not think that those people who were killed in Jerusalem, whether the number is 2,000, 3,000, or even 5,000, were necessarily inhabitants of Jerusalem. But largely, they could have been people from the surrounding towns who fled to Jerusalem, thinking that in Jerusalem they might be safer. And also the fact that in Jerusalem there is already a military, uh, you know, military uh, defend defenders uh, contingency that came from Egypt, from the Fatimids, uh, who were supposedly there in order to protect the city. So they thought probably they have a higher chance of survival if they were to go and uh, seek refuge in Jerusalem than to stay in their own towns because there was lots of fears. Um, and uh, that's what really uh, uh, unfolded in the sense that uh, Jerusalem at the time that was occupied by the Crusaders uh, was not a majority Muslim town and it never became a majority Muslim town until the 19th century and there are different dynamics that misstated of you know, people moving from rural areas to the towns, that's the whole process of urbanization that started to happen in the 19th century, definitely, definitely accelerated in the 20th century. That changed the demography of Jerusalem and made it an Islamic city in the sense that the Muslims are majority. But before that, I don't think that we can talk of Jerusalem as being an Islamic city according to the numbers. So numbers may have not made Jerusalem Islamic, but when we look at buildings, certainly we have a major shift in terms of the uh, character of the city itself. And uh, what many throughout uh, the last uh, 1200 years uh, probably notice is like this building called the Dome of Iraq, which has come to symbolize uh, Islamic Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, why was that building built over there? what was meant to be and uh, you know also the question of the relationship between the rulers and the urban structure of, of Jerusalem uh, you know here you, you hit the uh, essentially spot on in terms of uh, the, the question that uh, if Jerusalem was not in the pre-modern period the majority Muslim city uh, but that doesn't mean that the Muslim rulers and uh, some of the uh, even uh, governors, Muslim governors of Palestine, uh, they felt that Jerusalem is their stage to launch a competition with Christian Jerusalem uh, and make Jerusalem Islamic architecture. That is uh, the uh, Islamic architecture to be dominant, visible, and in some way overstage the Christian uh, Jerusalem because uh, clearly. Uh, up till the coming of uh, uh, the Muslims, uh, the Arab Muslims in 638, uh, Jerusalem was made into a visible Christian space. Everywhere you go, there is a cathedral or a church. Everywhere you go, you have a saint who is buried. Uh, there is some part that is associated with Jesus or some of his disciples. 
So it was made visible in terms of the architecture. And the Muslims came and started on a competition to outstage, essentially. Uh, and the Dome of the Rock is definitely the most spectacular, but it's not the only example. The Dome of the Rock is obviously uh, the, the, play, the place it was selected to sit on um, is remarkable because it, uh, it, uh, it's not overwhelmed by the urban architecture around it, like for instance, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on the one hand, um, it has its own stage. And if you come from essentially three sides, it's in your face. So it, it captivates your vision. Uh, and uh, the Muslims, Abdul Malik, uh, who ordered its construction, was pretty much interested, as far as we can tell, in setting up an Islamic space there to say, on the one hand, that Jerusalem is ours, uh, two, that here, we are, essentially, we are here to stay, uh, and more importantly, that Islam, in some way, not only inherits all of this legacy of Jerusalem, but fulfills it. And that is, from an Islamic point of view, it's extremely powerful. Fulfills it in the sense that uh, we here now, the Muslims, very much like the Christians did with the Byzantines, is to take all of the biblical history and the early Christian history and say, we are harnessing it. And now we are fulfilling all its promises and all its potentials in a religious sense. The Muslims, uh, the Umayyads in particular, tried to achieve the same thing by saying that what, what the Dome of the Rock symbolizes, it symbolizes the triumph of God as channeled through this new religion. Uh, and in this way, you are, through architecture, trying to contend and trying to make a statement. And in this way, uh, probably that can, uh, the, the question of the population of Jerusalem becomes a little bit secondary in, in that. I'm not kidding. We cover the question of architecture, which is fascinating, but I want to jump, skip forward a little bit, because obviously you said something very important. The, the Umayyads were trying to make Jerusalem Islamic, and they claimed that space. And so I, I was wondering, you know, moving forward to the uh, 21st century, uh, you know, that space is still now claimed by different groups. And I was wondering if you, you know, if you have a, a sense of what your views about this claims and counterclaims over that space. Do you think current claims, particularly now by the Jews over that space, do make any sense? And I know this might be like a, you know, a big question, and, uh, but out of curiosity, really. You, you know, the, uh, this is extremely complicated uh, in the sense that uh, the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic religious narratives about the significance of Jerusalem, there is tremendous uh, amount of common elements there. So they, they share a lot of that. Uh, the problem that happens, say, in ancient biblical tradition, that, uh, and starting with when, according to the biblical tradition, when Solomon built the first temple, which is something that, religiously speaking, Christianity and Islam affirm, um, that when that was built, there was some kind of monopolizing the Jerusalem and the site of the Haram in particular for specific and exclusive use of one group. And that is largely the ancient biblical and the Christian tradition. When the Muslims came, they claimed political authority over the site 
but not an exclusive religious use of the sign. And that is extremely different from, uh, say, today, what you have some Zionist Jewish uh, policies that uh, try to take, which actually what you see throughout Palestine and definitely in Jerusalem, is this gradual uh, uh, taking away of these different religious heritage, religiously significant places and uh, make complete and exclusive control and use of them uh, so that nobody else or no other variations. You, know, you have the huge debate, for instance, about the Western world, Kotel, uh, uh, about who can use it and for what purposes, right? Uh, it's still unresolved, uh, but you could see that there is a particular hegemonizing group that refuses, for instance, other Jewish groups from coming and praying, and they have to go, for instance, somewhere else. Uh, so that is, for the most part, a 20th century as a result, uh, reality as a result of the clash over Jerusalem. It becomes so po polarized and politicized that even, for instance, today, Muslims are not willing to concede that others have right to come and worship. I'd say in the, in the 7th century, in the 12th century, uh, in the 18th, 19th century, uh, the site was in the control of the Muslims, but the Muslims treated themselves something that I wrote about as custodians. That is, we have the right and the privilege and the honor and the obligation to be the custodians of this place, but we don't own it, and we cannot tell who can come and who cannot come. Uh, that understanding formed the basis of the Islamic approach to Jerusalem. And it exhibited during the Crusader period, by the way, and before and after. So this is not something that changed in Islam in as much as the political context polarized it to the extent, and, it, and in a way, understandably so, that uh, you feel it has become a place that uh, you have to protect because of the encroachment. And this is what informs a lot of Palestinian discourse about the fact that Jews shouldn't come to the Temple Mount because they have seen other places that, uh, for instance, in the Haram, uh, in the uh, Ibrahimi Haram in, in Hebron, in Khalil, where it was allowed to be open only to see that half of it got snatched away. Um, and uh, so th that discourse has become extremely problematic. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It is indeed. Uh, and it also made me think that uh, uh, holy places are not fixed. Um, there is this tendency of, you know, people think like, you know, that's a place, that's a building, but the understanding and the claims may stretch out of the, the buildings themselves and, you know, the locations themselves. You know, when we look at the wall and now, again, through archaeology, the digging, and so this idea of extending the reach of what one owns. And that made me ask, uh, made me think about uh, uh, another question because we were talking about early Islamic Jerusalem and you, you use the word custodian. You know, many visitors of Jerusalem are surprised that the keys of the, uh, of the Holy Sepulchre, so the most important uh, location for uh, Christians, at least for the, let's say, more, most traditional uh, Christian denominations, the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, the Copts, the Ethiopians, and so forth, the keys are actually owned, well, not owned really, kept by an Islamic family. And, and the opening is, again, entrusted to another family. So uh, I was wondering if you just uh, out of curiosity can give us a sense of the story of, of the keys of the Holy Sepulchre and how it developed throughout uh, you know, the early period of Islamic history and then in time. Um, you know, obviously uh, this uh, story goes back to the Crusader period, supposedly when Saladin uh, recaptured Jerusalem from the Crusaders in 1187. Uh, there was a debate uh, in his court about what to do with the structure. And uh, some suggested that he should demolish the church and therefore that's, that would end any Christian interest in the church of the Holy Sepulchre and Jerusalem by extension. Uh, but uh, a vocal and what seems to be a majority uh, opinion uh, insisted that he has no right to do so. Uh, and they cited the case that when Caliph Omar came to Jerusalem, he confirmed the Christian right to the Holy Sepulchre. So that, uh, given the context in which it was raised and how it was raised, essentially tells us that what these people are doing is, is uh, list or, or uh, uh, raising a legal objection uh, that uh, Caliph Omar established a legal precedent that became uh, essential uh, uh, approach to dealing with Christian properties in Jerusalem, that you cannot confiscate them, you cannot destroy them, they are the property of the Christians, you need to give them to the Christians. Uh, and that's different from the kind of structure that the Crusaders built, and those are not covered, so to speak, by al-Omariya, the pact of Omar. So, yeah. And uh, it is at that point that, uh, according to the legend, that Saladin realized, okay, we are not going to touch the Holy Sepulchre, but who controls it? 
Uh, and at that time, the Catholics and uh, what we call the Greek Orthodox, uh, they, they still remain because the Greek Orthodox Church uh, for a long period of time controlled religious authority over the Arab Orthodox. Uh, but since the 19th century, there has been separation and there has been demand among Arab uh, uh, Orthodox Palestinians that they should be in charge, but it is very complicated. Um, and you have also the Armenians, you have the Copts, you have uh, uh, Russian Orthodox, all of these things. Each one have a claim into that uh, uh, place. Uh, and probably it's, it's an idea that I personally like a lot uh, because it takes the problem away from the community, uh, the unresolvable problem away from the community and establishes a custodian who has no stake in those divisions. And therefore, he's supposedly that custodian is going to be uh, theoretically impartial. And that's uh, the idea of uh, finding a Muslim custodian to take care of the keys and another custodian to take care of certain ceremonial things associated with that is to avoid this constant clash that is going to be a headache and kind of uh, pain in the neck for whoever Muslim ruler ruling over Jerusalem is constantly are going to be dragged into the uh, quarrels among the Christian over uh, these spaces, which have never actually been resolved. And there is some kind of status quo that the Ottomans, if I'm not mistaken, in the 19th century tried to administer in order to uh, keep, so to speak, the peace. Um, so that is essentially the, uh, the, the origin of that practice that two Muslim families take care of two different aspects of very important religious uh, uh, functions associated with the accessing uh, of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and certain ceremonies. This is a fascinating story, certainly one that was ended down in different ways and created all sorts of uh, myths and ideas about these families and uh, even personally when you when you spend some time going early morning or late in the evening to see how the, the old rituals work, you know, made a lot of people wonder about uh, what's all behind this. Uh, and certainly today has become more a spectacle than anything else. But I, I guess probably skipping forward in 21st century, it still does, uh, in a sense, keep the peace between uh, this denomination. Do you think that it is a still sort of a, there's still a good reason to keep this uh, ritual going, or is just a ritualistic sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a form of expression, or or is there something different and more about it that we we can't see behind, uh, you know, this ending the key, opening and closing the holy sepulchre. You know, obviously, uh, historically and even today, to a large extent, this is more of a ceremonial uh, because. Uh, it, you know, why do you need to close the door of the church? Right? So it's more of a ceremonial than actually someone who controls the keys and only after the permission, the doors are open. Uh, but definitely today we are, we are dealing with new realities and new challenges that make those roles seem less important and less crucial than say historically. Uh, one, Jerusalem has become less Christian and there is political factors for that. You know, it, it, it's more today symbolically, and that could explain why uh, often, for instance, today, uh, and as as we write and discuss, we know that Jerusalem still occupy an important role in Christian religious discourse. Uh, 
but for some reason in political discourse, it seems to be abstracted as, oh, this is only a place where crazy Muslims and crazy Jews fight over. Um, but no, this is not, uh, there is plenty of uh, Christian involvement, and Christian uh, investment uh, in the city. Just you know, for, for an example, uh, there is tremendous political capital that is spent on the part of the evangelical Christian groups in Jerusalem today. Uh, some of it uh, is good, but most of it actually is horrible. Uh, so here you cannot simply bracket that out. Uh, and therefore, the initial problems between the different de Christian denominations that have different parts of the Holy Sepulchre uh, obviously has to do with, with uh, protecting what's left of their own, quote unquote, sorry to use that term, but uh, turf, uh, because some of them have seen that their presence, which was once extremely significant in the Eastern Mediterranean, is dwindling and being eaten away. And uh, therefore, they are afraid, for instance, that the Catholic Church is the most dominant form of Christianity, and by taking away that little spot that they still have left. And this applies to the Copt, this applies to the Orthodox, this applies to the Armenian. You know, their, their number, they used to be, their presence in the Orient used to be tremendous. And therefore, uh, uh, the, their control of the Holy Sepulchre was an extension of their dominant presence. Today, it is rather this kind of defending this last thing that is left here. To defend. Uh, and that has to do with the reality that we are dealing with in the 20th century. I have one more question about Islamic Jerusalem, and it's very much a question about uh, the Crusader period. As we talked about earlier, the Crusaders obviously arrived in the 11th century, and uh, as far as we know, it was not certainly uh, a you know, an easy arrival into the city as they slaughter essentially everyone, not just the Muslims, but in, including fellow Christians, particularly of the Greek Orthodox tradition. And, and yet, let's say in popular narratives, the sense is that the, 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 the Islamic legacy of, of Jerusalem continued through uh, the Crusader rule of Jerusalem. And I was wondering to what extent this may be true and uh, how did that sort of uh, play out? I mean, is it that only because of the buildings and the architecture of the city, or is it because uh, the feature of Jerusalem, the Islamic character, could not have been sort of uh, uh, just neglected by the new, uh, you know, the newcomers from uh, from Central Europe? Uh, yes, and uh, the Islamic uh, character in terms of architecture of Jerusalem uh, was extremely visible uh, and really dominant. Uh, often we only think of what was atop the Haram, the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock, the Aqsa Mosque. Uh, and we forget actually that there were at least two palaces to the southwestern side that were built by the Umayyads. And you ask why the Umayyads needed palaces. Um, obviously, therefore, they saw Jerusalem as some kind of political capital or as a space that has tremendous political uh, capital for them. Right? Uh, and again, on the one hand, the overwhelming majority of the population, even among the Arabs, by the way, in Syria were Christians. Uh, and that formed the backbone of the Umayyad army. 
so in a way, by claiming Jerusalem, they are not only claiming this shared heritage uh, with Christianity and Judaism that Islam has, uh, but also the fact that uh, they are controlling what is dearest to their own population. Uh, and therefore, they, they are showing that they are uh, the custodian of this new place. There are also uh, two, two administrative uh, sites. Most of this was destroyed at the beginning of the 10th century by a major earthquake. 10, uh, 17, between uh, essentially uh, the first uh, 20 years or so, there were two earthquakes, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Jerusalem that destroyed most of that. There are still traces. So uh, when you go to Jerusalem, uh, uh, all of that uh, uh, part of Western and Southern uh, part of the Haram, outside the Haram, uh, is where most of Umayyad Jerusalem, and that was still visible to the Crusaders. So when they came, the city was very visibly Islamic, obviously, in terms of architecture. Uh, but what was curious about what the Crusaders in particular did, uh, which is unlike what you see elsewhere in Europe, is for some reasons that we still need to properly understand, because there is, not, there is lots of essentializations about the way we think of the Crusaders, is that one, they, let, they still allowed Muslims to come to Jerusalem for religious purposes, more importantly, they didn't seem to have changed the architecture, except, say, the use of the architecture. So the Dome of the Rock, it was turned into a church, and therefore services were happened, like uh, mass, mass and things of that type, in the Dome. But they didn't, for instance, cover or destroy any of its Islamic details. So we have a traveler who was in Jerusalem in the 1170s, 1174, 1175, his name is Haraway. Uh, and he went to the Dome of the Rock and he described all the Quranic verses that are still in inscriptions all around it. And the same way with the uh, Aqsa Mosque. Uh, and he constantly, after every description, he says, yeah, the Crusaders didn't touch any of this or change it. They didn't touch any of this or change it. Um, and that tells us uh, in, you know, if we look uh, two centuries forward, that a lot of that architecture actually and, and uh, calligraphy, the Quranic cali uh, architecture and uh, calligraphy ended up making their way back into Europe. So often we assume that Arab Arabic calligraphy and Quranic verses into textile and into some kind of architectural details that here and there in Europe, including Notre Dame in Paris, uh, were taken from medieval Spain. But there is that encounter uh, during the time of the Crusaders that uh, is not properly yet studied at how much of it actually introduced Europe, a lot of appreciation, even though you know, this is Quran and they knew that this is the holy book of the Muslims. Uh, but nevertheless, for some way or another, they appreciated its artistic thing. Uh, and they, so that, that is the way that the Crusaders dealt with that place. Most of it, if not all of it, in Jerusalem in particular, was taken over and turned into either religious space for them, but they didn't block the Muslim access and they didn't destroy the details. This is fascinating how also architecture played a role in uh, sort of uh, changing uh, the mind of these newcomers who, who certainly were eager to uh, you know re reshape uh, uh, the, the region 
uh, according to their own criteria and ideas, particularly in terms of uh, Christianizing or probably as they would have yeah. said, re-Christianize the area. Let, let me add one thing actually, uh, just remember it. Uh, I, I work on that uh, a lot. Uh, um, and this, by the way, tells us how uh, this idea that Judaism came first and then Christianity and then Islam, in some sense that doesn't make any sense because there is a lot where Christianity developed uh, answers because Islam said something and in, sometimes incorporated it all and sometimes even Ju Judaism developed something because Christianity said certain things. Uh, in the case of Jerusalem in particular, we see how much the Crusaders took from the Muslims. The, 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 the main dominant Islamic narrative, by the way, is that Ju Jesus was born in Jerusalem. And it seems that it there could have been two narratives, two early Christian narratives. One that he was born in Bethlehem, one he was born in Jerusalem. And the one in Bethlehem won over because it was the one enshrined in the Gospels. Uh, but uh, the Muslims, for some reason, they championed that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. There was a knowledge that he was born in Bethlehem and was also popular at some point, but among the literati, Jesus was born in Jerusalem. So when you go to the uh, uh, Haram under the Aqsa Mosque, you have Mahd Isa, right? supposedly the place where Jesus was born, right? And the Crusaders took it over and, and they made a small, small cloister there. So that tells you a lot that they came and they said those Muslims are essentially uh, considering this spot sacred because this is where Mary, when she was pregnant with Jesus came and this is where she gave birth to him. So they turned it into a cloister. And when you go today to the Aqsa Mosque and you go down, they are still there in the Crusader architecture. This is, you know, they, they did some embellishment of it in order to make them such. I guess the Crusader were probably thinking along the line, well, if it turns out it was not Bethlehem, it's also better to have a control of this. So at least one of the two is going to be the real place where Jesus was born. Exactly, exactly. I think that that happens a lot in the medieval period where you allow different competing narratives to exist because you are not always certain which one is correct. And if you decide to cut one out, you are actually, you might be cutting out the correct one and therefore, uh, you know, Very what are you losing? Very thinking. What are you losing? You, know, you have the two spots. I want to move to something else towards the end of the interview. Uh, you, you recently uh, worked in a production by, uh, which was staged by CNN, a, a very important documentary in, in a number of episodes about Jerusalem. The title was Jerusalem, City of Faith and Fury, uh, which is available for CNN. And it's, uh, I must say, it's one of the most sort of uh, convincing documentaries I, I watched about Jerusalem. There are many sometimes they just focus on one group or the other or the current politics this at least tried to focus on lar a large number of issues and i was wondering what was your experience of working uh, in such a documentary and what are sort of the challenges that you had to face because one thing that i noticed is that often the voice of the scholars interview was contradicted by the narration, which offered uh, not necessarily a you know, complete different view, but certainly one that didn't match what the scholars were suggesting in their uh, sort of bits uh, throughout the documentary. You, you know, often sometimes we think documentaries are 
objective uh, productions. Uh, to some extent, they might be more uh, but uh, it's not necessarily always the case. And nevertheless, even when they are a little bit more objective, they are still the outcome of some kind of a vision of the documentarian, whoever is doing that. And uh, therefore, it echoes the biases, the uh, agendas. Uh, their, and they, they, by the way, those might be good or they might not be good. I'm, I'm not judging. Uh, I agree that uh, the CNN documentary is one of the best, uh, and uh, I enjoyed working for it. Um, and uh, that's always a challenge, try to uh, bring together this kind of an in-depth uh, knowledge and expertise of researchers and scholars, and to turn it into something that is seamless and deliverable for a general audience, like the average uh, American uh, viewer or uh, the Anglophone viewer, uh, or you know, it's it's broadcasted anywhere. So any viewer uh, around the world who doesn't know that complex history, uh, unable to fill in the blank, and therefore you need to keep them hooked to what they are seeing. So that's the challenge. Um, and I have worked enough in documentaries to see the artistic impulse of the director. And I appreciate that, you know, again, sometimes I completely agree with what they are doing. Sometimes I don't like what they are doing, uh, but I, I got to the point where I now realize that actually uh, people who put together documentaries, directors in particular, are artists after all, and they, want, are, they are delivering a product. Um, and therefore, um, they, they want to balance between uh, what the specialists say and what they want to convey. And sometimes you might hit certain points where there might be contradictions uh, or uh, what the scholar is saying doesn't necessarily match what is being uh, narrated. Um, I, I think that's unavoidable. Uh, obviously, the, the more you have of those things, the more it's gonna translate into the quality of the documentary. Uh, and the less you have uh, of those, uh, uh, the more coherent the documentary is gonna uh, show. But it is, it is very hard actually to take that point between this in-depth, very dense knowledge that come and complicated, uh, hard to streamline knowledge that we scholars share. And often we don't even agree. And the other one where you have to narrate and therefore remove all complexities, reduce everything into something that is deliverable in a very understandable way to someone who knows nothing, probably never heard of Jerusalem before watching the documentary. So that's, that's uh, the biggest challenge that uh, they face. And as a contributor, it's not like you need to, to be aware of that in as much as um, you also need to talk in a language that reduces the complexity and confusion from the viewer at the same time, make them essentially invite them a little bit to your world to, to, to realize that this is not something easy, and you shouldn't simply take anybody's word uh, for face value. You need to judge and measure things uh, according to their level of complexity. I want to bring you back to something you mentioned at the very beginning, because often when we think about medieval Jerusalem, certainly you know, sort of, uh, from the ninth, seventh century onwards or eighth century onwards, there is always this sense of Eurocentric view that everything is around the period of the Crusades. 
and somehow sort of the long Islamic history of Jerusalem is uh, embedded into it. And then we jump into the Ottomans uh, and then, well, the Ottomans uh, are, are gone and 1917 comes and the British are, are in Jerusalem. And so sometimes there is this kind of like, uh, you know, very long uh, uh, sort of chronology, which eventually is divided into, yes, there is an Islamic Jerusalem, there's a Crusades, big period, the Ottomans, which are acknowledged at least, and then it's the British. So I was wondering, is there a way, do you think, to rectify, to change this perception? Uh, are documentaries a good enough tool to do that? Or are there should be other ways to, you know, make it possible for people interested in Jerusalem, but even for, you know, just followers of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism to sort of uh, understand Jerusalem in this larger context? You know, obviously, Eurocentricity of knowledge, in my opinion, is the worst thing that happened to academia in general. Um, it's not like everything is wrong, but it is extremely essentialist. And therefore, it largely to this day refuses to see the shades. It insists on essentialization. So yes, uh, largely when Eurocentricity uh, of not, of, uh, in academia, when, when people think of Jerusalem, they are constantly and often drawn to Jerusalem, to the Crusader period and the clash over Jerusalem. Um, or when they talk about Jerusalem and they start thinking Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Jerusalem, oh, uh, J Jerusalem is the third holy city in Islam, which means that, you know, that's essentially a side interest to them, right? Um, and they, uh, that's essentializations that uh, Jerusalem, Judaism started with Judaism, and therefore it is the capital of Judaism. In Christianity, Rome is more important. Jerusalem is secondary. And the Muslims, they have other places. You know, all these essentializations essentially not only harm our understanding of Jerusalem historically and today, but are actually are obstacles in front of actually understanding what does Jerusalem mean for Judaism. What does it mean for Christianity? What does it mean for Islam? And what does it mean for collectively the three of these groups? Also, what does it mean for Jerusalem to be completely liberated from its religious heritage? Right? Because not everybody who lives now in Jerusalem cares about its religious heritage. There's plenty of secularists and atheists among the Palestinians and among the uh, Israelis. Right? So the religious heritage doesn't mean much to them. Jerusalem is their town. This is where they were born. This is where they live, right? So for them, they might tell you, you know, tell me something not, that has nothing to do with religion. You know, tell me more about Jerusalem as, as a city, as an urban place where I go on, you know, I grew up, I, I have my experiences, my dreams, my, my love stories and all of these things. So the essentialization of Jerusalem is our obstacle that is, and we need to break it so that we, when we get to understand what does it mean, for instance, when Islam says, or when Muslims say Islam is the third holy place, it doesn't mean that this is, they are willing to ditch it. Right? It doesn't mean that if you, they are choosing it. Right? This is some kind of a theoretical criteria that in the final analysis, when push comes to shove, the Muslims feel they cannot separate themselves from it. And the same way, that's what, uh, that's why I go back to that story of Saladin when he was reflecting on what to do with the Church of the Hebrew Sepulchre. 
everybody in that room realized that you, you might destroy Jerusalem, but there is no way you can take it out of the Christian religious psychology. Right? And you know, unless someone decides that religious psychology is no meaning to them, Jerusalem is going to be still centered, centered in the religious psychology of Christianity. And it is centered in the religious psychology of Judaism. And it is centered in the religious psychology of Islam. So when we come to it from that point, we, we force ourselves to rethink according to how each group looks at the city, individually and collectively. So individually as, as, as a Jewish city, as a Christian city, as a Muslim city, and in the reality, okay, collectively, how the three of us can work some kind of formula where we can change. And again, the, the pillar example of that is not that the Muslims are better. I, this is not the way I approach that. But it so happened because the Muslims were, un, until much, much later, they were the minority, which means that they could not impose their will, right? Let's put it in this way. They had to come into some kind of an agreement that those places, we have a share in them, but they are not ours in totality, similar to, for instance, Mecca or Medina, where from the point of departure, from the point that Islam was established there, they were exclusively Islamic. And at no point, they were not Islamic. Right? So there is no way the Muslims are going to say, OK, we're going to willing to share. They took, they took Jerusalem. They were never the majority in Jerusalem until the modern period. And therefore, they had to accept that it's not our call here only. And that is, tells you about the complexity of this place. And that's why the Eurocentricity of knowledge, when we apply it to a place like Jerusalem, with its many legacies and many complexities, we completely miss the story. And we completely miss what unfolded in that. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that everybody has to love everybody, or everybody has to um, socialize with everybody, or or that sometimes they might not kill each other over that. Uh, but what it means is that inherently in the Islamic religious discourse about Jerusalem, there is the celebration of the Christian and Jewish dimensions. And that, what, well, that was not lost on the Muslims. You know, if you look, and that's one of the books that I uh, take great pride in editing is the first Islamic treatise about the religious significance of Jerusalem. It's called the Fada'il Quds. Uh, and I came to know about it uh, when I was graduate student at the American University of Beirut. One of my teachers, Tarif Khalidi, encouraged me to actually go and dig more to learn about this earliest, uh, which, by the way, uh, undermines all theories about why the Muslims were interested in Jerusalem. And, and you look at it and you see the author acknowledging there is the biblical layer, there is the Christian layer, and there is the Islamic layer. All of these is, constitute what, in his mind, is this broader Islamic uh, uh, Jerusalem. Right? And you cannot take any part of that, because if you take part of that, it is, it is a structure on three uh, uh, pillars. You take one, it's going to fall. Um, so uh, the biblical aspect is extremely important, which uh, found its manifestation in the Jewish tradition, the, Christian as the early Christian aspect. Uh, found its manifestation in the Christian tradition. And the Muslim aspect found uh, its manifestation in what we call the Islamic religion. You know, all of this in his mind. Uh, and there is a, even a futuristic one that he puts actually right and center. Uh, uh, one third of his discourse about the importance of Jerusalem actually hasn't happened yet. 
or is not happening this time. This is the futuristic, the end of time, uh, which today we don't talk about that. Uh, again, all of these combine and tells you about the complexity that, you know, in that DNA of Islam, there is a lot of Judaism, there is lots of Christianity, and there is what we call exclusively Islamic uh, material. That is that what the Muslims themselves, as they start to form their ideas about Islam, they, they enshrine their own experiences, their own thought into that. Uh, and that complements those other groups. In the case of Jerusalem, particularly, that is what I consider to be Islamic Jerusalem. So you could see there how, how it is inclusive rather than exclusive. And I'm fascinated, and I really love this idea, uh, which I share and support, that in the end, despite the fact that today you have claimed by all the very religious groups in different ways, they, they don't, it seems that they don't understand that each and one of these religions have been shaped by the different debates and different uh, uh, sort of incorporation of uh, different traditions, but uh, each and one of them claim to be original and never changed throughout history. And obviously we know that it's, that's not the case. I have one last question, and it's very much about what we didn't talk about. Uh, obviously, uh, conversations always take uh, one road and they follow that particular road. But I want to ask uh, if there's anything that I didn't ask that you want to add as a final question. Uh, you know, obviously, one can talk about Jerusalem. It's, uh, it's such a rich place. Uh, uh, I, I, it's not in a, uh, a question as much as uh, what keeps fascinating me to work uh, often i work on topic and get sick and tired of it and say you know what i am not going to come back to it anymore but for some reason jerusalem keeps uh, raising new interest the more i think of it the more i uh, look at its complexity the fact that this is a place that exists as much in reality as it is in our imaginations um, and here i'm i'm someone who doesn't have direct family tie to uh, Jerusalem. You know, I have only teachers, friends, people I know from all walks of life and all religious communities who, who were from Jerusalem. Um, I studied it a lot. So I studied Jerusalem as an idea a lot. Right? Uh, and I always come back to ask about uh, that kind of question is, which one shapes the other? Which Jerusalem shapes the other? The real Jerusalem shapes the idea or the ideal Jerusalem shapes the real uh, and that is extremely fascinating because there is tremendous dialectic, uh, uh, and dialectic in the sense, and this this has played out throughout history. Not only, you know, you have the biblical Jerusalem, and then there was a moment of crisis that gave rise to rabbinic Judaism, and a lot of rabbinic Judaism energy is to make sense of what happened and how we move forward in relation to Jerusalem, and the same way with Christianity, right? But the fascinating, the most fascinating thing is that you develop an idea that sometimes is completely unrelated to the reality of Jerusalem, and you impose it on the city and you start reacting as if it is reality. So this is where the reality and the ideal is not simply informing each other, but forming bases at different periods of time that we start taking them 
and thinking of Jerusalem along those terms. And they, probably that's probably one of the biggest legacies of the city. And it's at the same time, its major problem is for some reasons, we are unable to decouple it from the expectations. And those are a melange of historical and idealistic expectations. Uh, so even the people of Jerusalem seems not be able to escape being cornered and boxed into, uh, into that. Uh, again, for us thinkers and researchers and people who work on that, this is fascinating. Um, it might be a different story for someone who's asked to live in Jerusalem. This was uh, Professor Suleiman Ali Murad, professor of religion at Smith College. I just want to mention also he has worked recently as a historical advisor and appeared on numerous film documentaries, including uh, Jerusalem City of Faith and Fury, produced by CNN in 2021, and The Sultan and the Saint by PBS in 2017. But I also want to uh, remind all of the listeners, obviously, of the uh, uh, Routledge Handbook on Jerusalem that he co-authored with uh, uh, Naomi Kultum from and Bedros del Matosia. Suleiman, this was great. Thank you so much. Roberto, thank you so much, Adina. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.